Well, welcome everyone. Uh, Daniel and Lauren, uh, it's great to have you with us tonight. Um, my name is Dan Rhodes. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, Joseph, it's always great to have you back with us. Uh, thanks for playing with us tonight. I know it's a little bit intimidating to kind of stand up here at the beginning. We're kind of like, well, is this, will we go ahead and start? Yeah. Uh, so thank you all for, for joining us in this space and for sharing with us tonight. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, I know you guys have a band, you have a record out. We'd love to hear about that. I know uh, some of our folks would like to connect with that if that's possible and talk yeah, about who you are and where you're coming from. For sure. We are, we're honored to be here and we're thankful to, uh, to share the music with you and to, to sing with you. Um, we, Lauren and I got married about a year ago and when we got married she joined me and I was already doing music <clears throat> and we are now a band called Lowland Home. So we are touring most of the time. We've just finished our first collaborative record, um, but she is a part of the last record I released uh, as well. And we, we primarily play house concerts. We try to do very few venues. Um, and the way the collaboration has worked out, uh, Lauren is a visual artist, and so we, we call it multi-sensory folk. Um, and so we try to bring an experience to people's communities. So we start our shows by serving bread. We hand out lyric books so people can follow along if they want to and put out essential oil burners. And um, the goal is to hopefully show people who, uh, who, um, who the Lord really is, what he's actually like uh, by trying to connect on as many levels as possible. And um, before I was just kind of a traditional folk songwriter, and so um, the Lord has used our marriage and trying to figure out our joint identity musically and in marriage to kind of bring this whole thing about. So we've been low and home for like six months or eight months or something. So great, thank you very much. Uh, it's, like I said, it's great to have you. Is there a way that folks could connect? It, like internet or website kind of that people could go to? It's just lowlandhome.com. Lowlandhome.com. Okay, and great. You, yeah, that's great. And I assume, Joseph, you were, you were kind of the connection with these guys, kind of yeah. hooking us into them and whatnot. So. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I've been playing with Daniel like a year ago on the record he released by himself called Brother Stranger. Okay. I was a part of, not recording it, but a part of uh, leading up to the release show, and then kind of part months after that, we played a lot of shows together and been good friends. Great. Well, thank you uh, again. Uh, for those of you that are new with us, uh, our community, uh, Mace Way, we, we are a group of people who gather regularly uh, to listen for God's voice, to hear from one another, to read uh, the scripture with one another, to listen to how God is working in our midst, and to see how we might participate with what God's doing in our world, particularly here in Durham, um, but in and around our communities. Uh, and sensing that we ourselves are those people who've been captivated by the gospel of Christ and that that gospel is at work in our world um, and looking for ways that we can connect with one another and serving that um, and connect with our community and serving that. Um, so welcome here tonight. If you're looking to get involved more in the community, there are several different ways to do that. Um, one way is through some of our small groups that meet throughout our community. Um, if you're interested in one of those, we have several of those that meet throughout the week. Uh, please email Elizabeth Eford. Her email address is on the website. You can connect with her there. Um, I don't think it's here. Is it here? Okay. Uh, it's on the website. 
um, EmmausWay.net, so you can connect uh, through the website to her. Uh, if you're interested in joining our pub group, our pub group meets at 8.15 over here at uh, Bull McCabe's on Thursday evenings, and we talk. It's kind of a just come if you want to. If you'd like to get on the, the serve, the listserv to receive, uh, a lot of times I'll send out an article or a short reading or maybe a newspaper clipping, something that's happened in the week that we'll talk about. If you'd like to get on that list, or if you don't even have to be on that, you don't even have to come to Pub Group. Uh, if you just want to be on it, please shoot me an email and I'll add you to the list so that you can get on the readings for the week. Um, there's been a lot going on in our community this week. Uh, I know that, I, do you want to give us an update real quick on how the meal went and, and how things are going with the uh, Church World Service stuff? so much. Um, and look for more of that coming up uh, with Church World Service and some of the stuff that we have going on here. Um, I know there's also a perspectives meeting. I don't know if you want to kind of throw anything out there. That was last night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I recounting? I didn't know if there's anything that you wanted to p- pipe in about. This is turning into a Malik cult over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's only got five phones in 40 years, and then it only took him two years to do the next one. He has two in production, so he's sensing the end or something. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great time watching together. It, you know, it's actually, it's, you can rent it on iTunes, so I definitely recommend it. It's very great. Cool, thank you. Um, and Josh has an announcement for us about uh, kind of our gathered worship for next week. Yes, so uh, next week our worship is going to look a little bit different. Um, I don't know how many of you know the blogger, writer, Rachel Held Evans. So if any of you follow her blog, she did what I thought was an incredibly neat practice over Lent, where um, she had written this biblical womanhood book that had gotten a lot of ire from certain uh, segments of the population. 
And so what she decided to do as a Lenten practice was actually to print out all of the hate mail that she got and all of the negative reviews and all these other things and then to learn origami by taking them and folding them into uh, really pretty shapes. Um, and I thought this was such a fascinating idea of this sort of transformative relationship to something that could be so clearly hateful and, uh, and negative and, and to, to, to work actually on the paper in some way to affect a transformative change. So our service next week is going to sort of take that form. Um, we're going to be doing origami, we're going to be doing blackout poems, uh, we're going to be doing collage, um, and then we're going to be doing something that has a very fancy French name but is very simple, um, where basically we'll be defacing visual images as well uh, in sort of interesting ways in order to bring about change on the face of those visual images. So um, what we're asking for you guys to do is to bring in texts, visual images, other things that have been sort of personally like damaging or have been uh, related to a particular critique of the church or something else that has been hurtful to you. Um, and then we're going to ask you to actually take those materials and transform them at a, at a variety of stations. So I'm going to send out a reminder about this this week, and we'll have some stuff here for people um, as well. But if there's something specifically that you would like to work on, we would love to have... Um, you bring stuff in, and if there's anything that you would like uh, maybe to have multiple copies of, you can contact me, and uh, we'll be sure and have that. So. Thank you so much, Josh, and thanks to the aesthetics team for thinking through it. For those of you that uh, kind of haven't been with us, especially since the turn of the year, we've been uh, not doing music every single week. We do music usually about three weeks out of a month, and then uh, that aesthetics team has really been pouring a lot of work into helping us think through how creatively to do other things in our, our gathered worship with one another. And so I'm really looking forward to some of this stuff. Although it's completely new to me, I'm completely out of my element in some of this stuff. And I'm sure some of you will be too, but it's low-level entry kind of, you don't have to feel like you are, a, you know, a Michelangelo or a Picasso or something to get involved. So, which is helpful for me because I'm not anywhere near any of that. Kind of just a stick figure drawer myself. Um, yeah, anyway, welcome to Amazeway. It's great to have all of you with us. I'm going to turn it back to Daniel and Lauren uh, and Joseph. Thank you all for being with us. It's great to have you. Um, this song was inspired by a North Carolina author, Thomas Wolfe, who wrote Look Homeward Angel. Um, there's a poem in the beginning that really inspired this, but also just themes throughout the book of the difficulty of knowing each other, even though we're all made in the same image. We never can fully know what's going on with one another or the depth of each other's pain. Um, so this song is kind of exploring that. It's called Brother Stranger. Which of us has known his lonely breath? 
singing to all, the, all different types of people, um, but it's about what the Lord is up to in, in the world, um, and it's also about what things look like, uh, and it's, sometimes it's hard to believe that uh, all things are being made new, or that, uh, you know, that the Lord finishes every single thing He starts, um, but He does, and I'm so glad, so glad He does. <clears throat> Uh, I think that's all. (laughs) 
um, you know, steps behind us on our path that we had come on and had rejected in terms of how we were going to live and how we were going to support ourselves. And um, that uh, insight from them was basically said that, that the, um, the monster that we were trying to slay was too big. We were trying to slay this monster of a, a donor-recipient relationship between African organizations and um, people who you know, flood with charity or foundations or whatever. And, and create relationships that are money-based. We were trying to, to go against that and, and create different kinds of relationships. And with, uh, with, the, org with the advisors pointing this out to us, um, I had a moment of clarity that, that um, was painful, that um, we had been trying to move the organizations we work with in Africa, about 14 of them that we are shepherding, can you just say real quick what some of those do for people that don't Yeah, know? that's right, because yeah. some of you don't know. So these are 14 organizations throughout East Africa that do a wide variety of things. Some of them are working with women who have HIV in slums and, and empowering them economically. Another one is working with women who escaped from the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda and are getting them back into the land. Uh, one of them is working with writers, the new generation of writers in Nairobi. Um, so we were trying to bring life through, through civic organizations throughout East Africa by getting them to teach each other rather than seeking outside experts and finding who among them was the expert at any, any one thing and then that, that organization teaching all the others how to do those things. Um, but we couldn't fund it. We found that it was um, um, economically unsustainable after eight years of trying. And um, we stopped. We decided to stop. And it's really hard for me to say this to you. Um, but we, we decided to um, stop that because we, I felt, we felt philosophically inconsistent because we were trying to teach these organizations to operate on a basis that didn't force them to look for all of their answers and others' money. And that's what we were doing. We were looking for others' money to, to sustain us and keep us going. And, um, and that wasn't a scalable idea. We wanted this to, to multiply and, and to go throughout the continent eventually. We wanted to create a movement, not just an organization. And this wasn't scalable. So we decided to stop putting our energy into that so that we could begin to think about what was another approach. And we're beginning very, very early stages of thinking about another approach. We haven't given up on the mission, but we have given up on that attempt. Um, there, the speaker last week, I forget his name. David. David. David was encouraging us to think about becoming part of movements and to, to not try to be heroes. And um, so we were trying to start a movement, and we still are. And I am praying desperately to be a hero. <laughs> because, because even though he's, he exhorted us against that, I want to be a hero so much because the alternative scares me so much, which is to be a fool and um, to have tried something so long and have it not work out. So um, I would appreciate your prayers on this. <laughs> um, maybe there's some options between hero and fool. We'll, fool, we'll, we'll find out. But um, that's where things are with that horizon.
Thank you so much. I, I, I actually think that you're not a fool. I think one of the things that we've done bad, poorly theologically, uh, throughout much of our history, at least kind of in evangelical circles, is to assume that uh, if God is in it, it always has to be a success for the complete duration of everything. And I think our, our misconceptions of God in that sense are, I think our church has to be more experimental, you know? Like, we have to take chances, take risks, and, you know, it, it sucks when you poured your life into something for eight years and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of anything emerging out of it. But I think there's something to be valued in that sense of risk-taking. Um, being an experimental kind of community, an experimental people who envision things and have dreams and kind of look at them. Um, so uh, I think that's something to be extremely proud of. Um, and I think I, we as a community are extremely proud of the things that, I, uh, that Africa Rising has done in the way that uh, you've taught us. Um, so uh, we'll look forward to seeing what comes out in the future and we'll continue to pray with you. Do you mind if I pray with you right now? God, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are a God who's on the move, a God who does not sit still, um, a God who challenges us and directs us to take chances, to take risks, to be on the move with you, uh, to chance that if we begin something, we might find uh, that you're at work or that you're taking us in a different direction, uh, that you're moving and shifting uh, in this world ways that we could not imagine. Um, Lord, we pray for Jim and for uh, all the folks who are uh, involved with Africa Rising as they try to kind of uh, dismantle what was in place and reboot, rethink, kind of uh, reconfigure what might be possible in the future. We pray that you'd give them grace and give them patience uh, and that you would also rekindle within them uh, those passions and that vision that you lit uh, eight years ago and have uh, been burning all this time. We thank you for uh, the grace that you give us in these times uh, to go on and to kind of continue to pursue what you might be doing. All these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. A couple of segues before I let us pass peace with each other. One is... Um, some of the questions that we've been asking about what it means to be a resurrection community are deeply aligned with that, that type of dangerous story and dangerous actions, which are sometimes framed as foolish from one perspective, so to speak. So that uh, aligns us. And the fancy French word that Josh was looking for is uh, uh, detournement, or I'm sure there's a French way to say, oh, you're fancy detournement, or something like that. But uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about the background on that. But one of my, I'm studying with a guy who is the epicenter, because there's like an epicenter of one, <laughs> of people who are experts on this group that did this called the French Situationist. And um, and uh, I have to create a detournement, and I'll explain what that is later. Uh, but interestingly, uh, in God's country is my text that I'm using for this. Uh, and, it's a, it's an, and, and what we did musically was a really interesting journey from a community that was barren. In God's country is a lament of, of a religious community and kind of Christian America being barren. And the journey musically we took from being barren to something that was bearing fruit from seeds. So uh, we'll be squarely in that ground uh, next week in a practice sense tonight, kind of in a text sense. But let me give you an opportunity to stand up, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody you don't know, please introduce yourself.
yourself. I'm going to jump back in in about 60 seconds, but if that's okay, feel free to still be getting coffee and um, some really good snacks back over there. So uh, relax and grab something, uh, greet each other, and I'm going to get started in just a moment. Thanks, everybody. Okay, quick poll here while we're reassembling yourselves. Who watched more than five hours of news this week? No one, no one noticed the Boston... Marathon. So a few people. Anybody watch more than like 10 hours of news this week? Yeah? Okay, this isn't going the way I expected it. Uh, Ann, Brandon, you and the three of us, we have a problem because I'm nowhere near my level of news watching. I think I was... Uh, how much, yeah, true. How much, how much news did you watch this week, Brandon? How about you, Mary Ann? Right. Yeah. Several people in my program from Boston, and they were just like, and in fact, we were kind of mastering the art of like writing papers while watching the news and making sure that the text stayed far enough apart that you didn't write something in from that. But um, the reason I say that, as well as just being a very important event, so to speak, is we've been talking about this whole idea of Easter and what does it mean to be a community or individuals who embrace the realities of Easter. And, um, and I wrote, this was in my notes, before uh, the marathon bombing or before the big standoff and all these things, um, was the, um, the idea that the, the ancients believed in powers that controlled their world, powers of sin and death. These were, these were realities uh, that controlled their world. And theologically, early Christians began to wrestle with a world that where they were proclaiming the defeat of those powers, but the world sure looked like it was very much still in the hands of, of those beasts, so to speak. And so what became kind of a theological watchword for this was in some ways that the powers were defeated, but present and dangerous, um, like a cornered felon. And in some ways, we, we saw the fears of that image um, uh, many times on the news. And so this is the world that we live in. And I asked some questions last week as we have been kind of working our way through the season of Easter and, and asking. Last week, we identified the gospel narrative. And the narrative of Easter is a very much a dangerous story. It's a story that unsettles the world that we live in. It's, it's not a popular story. It's not a provable story. In some ways, you can parse it out and say, that's an absolutely crazy story, but it's the story that we tell, and it's the source of our hope. And here's just a few of the questions that I left you with last week. I'll probably mention them from time to time, but how will we, or how are we, um, embodying the dangerous story of Easter? Um, will our voice be bold enough 
so that authorities will notice and will notice uncomfortably. Can we stir the powers from their slumber or are they perfectly content with the stories that we tell? Um, Are we willing to, and I think we're going to do some of this next week, to craft disturbing acts of kindness, visions of beauty that unsettle? Can we have a dangerous imagination? Because in some ways, you know, you want to make friends quickly, um, find someone that you hate and, and then find someone else who hates the same person. And that's a wonderful starting point. I mean, you can bitch and moan about this hateful person for years before you realize that I'm not sure we're even friends, but we sure hate Dave Decent. So, you know, this, we're comfortable with that. You know, and so um, to some degree, um, are, we, are we able to have relational imaginations that go beyond images like common enemies and people that we disapprove of? And we asked the question last week, can we enter forbidden realms? Things like economics, politics, and race, the things that we're told not to talk about, but in some ways by not talking about them, we imply that the dangerous story of Easter has nothing to do with those things. And in some ways we defang that story by doing that. And then this might be the hardest thing. Are we able to or willing to live with a joy that's consistent with the implications of Easter? So those are the questions that we have kind of sitting as a backdrop during this kind of season of Easter as our our community is going through this. Um, We're going to look tonight. You have the text in front of you. I'm going to ask somebody to read this in just a moment. Uh, It's Acts chapter 9 verses um, 36 through 43. Um, a small text. It's, it's, this is actually a place where we have the early church, like us, struggling with the story of Easter. Um, there's great change afoot. Uh, in the early part of that chapter, the Apostle Paul um, has converted, and, and we know some of the implications of that. They don't know those implications from that. But it's a story of Peter and a resurrection that happens of a faithful woman. Uh, a woman who was known all about Lydda as a, a woman of faith, a saint, if you will, and the story of her death. Now, I've talked to you guys many about many times about this, but this is a story I read really personally. Um, as a kid, as I've told you many times, my mom died of breast cancer um, in, in my freshman year in college. My brother was in high school, and she was one of those incredibly faithful people in a small rural church community, one of the people People who just really did what was expected. And deep down, our theology always had this kind of caveat that, you know, if something happens to Dan Rhodes, you know, somewhere we probably could dig for enough dirt, find out that he deserved it, so to speak. And in some ways, she was this person like Dorcas and Tabitha, and believe me, it's not easy being Tabitha's son. Uh, I think this is where maybe I've gotten my, my great palate for sin, so to speak. But, um, but her death was shocking uh, to people. It was, it was theologically shocking. It was unexplainable. It didn't fit our kind of somehow crafted theology that everything works out in the end, and if it doesn't work out in your favor, then it probably shouldn't have worked out in your favor, so to speak. And that was a theology that we passed on without really realizing that we were doing that. So I read this story very personally because this woman's death has shocked a community. It's, it's made them uh, wonder about uh, the promises of Easter. It's a, and I don't know about this. Some of you, Brandon, and others who are biblical scholars might be able help me with this, but I wonder if this isn't the first um, published death in the life of the church by natural causes. 
Um, I mean, I guess Anais and Sephira was at national causes, and uh, I don't. I mean, I, this might be the first one that we read about in the life of the early church, which is going to become a huge problem when we start reading First Thessalonians as people start to die, and people are like, "Jesus said he's coming back. He said his resurrection changed everything in the world, but not so much for Phil Jakes, who's gone, and we loved him, you know." And so, um, this is a crisis. It's a crisis of theology. It's a crisis for a community to ask. How do we live as Easter people? What does the resurrection mean for our uh, community? So if somebody has it, just please read um, Acts 9, uh, 36 through 43. I appreciate that. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name is Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. They had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two, him, two men to him with a request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside. And then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand, and he helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. <coughs> Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a king. Thank you, Ben. So, a couple questions for you. Um, first, and, and if you if you don't see this because you haven't read New Testament stuff and gospel stuff, we all come from really mixed backgrounds uh, in, in a man's way. But if you're familiar with some of the gospel stories, you've grown up reading those, um, this story is constructed with, with some parallels to the life and ministry of Jesus. Do you see a couple of those? If you see them, shout them out to me. Uh, things that are a little bit similar to this story, to things that Jesus did or was in the middle of. Yeah, and the, the language is really similar, too. It's not come back to life. It's just a simple command, like wake up, get up, that sort of very, very similar to um, stories like Lazarus and, and the little girl, people that Jesus called back, so to speak, from death or sleep, as he often said. Those exactly other little parallels that you see. Yeah, so there's this entry of someone with power from afar, so to speak, absolutely. And so Peter is being parallel to some degree to the ministry of, of Jesus here, absolutely. Other, anything you see? Well, apart from the gospel, so she can't go and die. That's the world that they live in, and that's the world that most people now live in. We don't live in that world, right? We come here and we go to the hospital, we get drunk. But the people that are in you know, where there's all these tropical diseases where there's no cure. They seem to live in the same world as these biblical people. Yeah, it happens all the time. You get ill, suddenly you end up. You get dengue fever, you get malaria, you get yellow fever, whatever it is, and you die. So 
these people live with debt in a way that we are completely insulated from. And, and that strikes, Andrew, to the idea of what we talked about. I know that's obscure language, but we talked about the, the, what they thought of powers. Death was a power that you had no voice against. It came and called, and you looked at its wake. And other than some sort of incredible external force, there was not understanding as to why people died. Um, it, it, they just died. And, and I, I can't pull up the figures, but uh, life expectancy in this, this part of the, the, the Roman Empire was probably the what, mid-30s uh, or so. I mean, it was, it was a common visitor. I mean, uh, most of you guys would be kind of in your AARP years, and, and, and you'd be reading my, my memoir, you know, uh, uh, Pushing Up Daisies. You know, I mean, we, we are well past our years in the world that they live in, so to speak. And so that's very, very true. And, and it's a story with urgency to it. And a lot of Jesus was called urgently to a couple of these circumstances. Now, let me put you in the interpretive seat on this. Um, it's an interesting story. It's a dramatic story. It's one that you can, you know, if you're reading Acts, you can read right past it, you know. Sometimes you get kind of like theologically immune to things. And Jesus healed somebody from the dead. Cool. Uh, he uh, fed a bunch of people. Oh, that's kind of outrageous. What did he say? That? You know, I mean, you just kind of read through these things and because we, we can become numb to them. This is a story that sometimes I forget is in Acts uh, reporting of the life of the church. It's like, you don't see that very often. I'd like to see that sometime. It's a dramatic story. Um, but let me put you in the interpretive seat and just uh, a few of you, uh, just a line or two. We do this in text every week as we say, how does that story strike you? What's it about? Uh, so how does that story strike you? Uh, what's it about? So we see the huge power of death. It, it affects the good. It affects those who might be deemed unworthy to be part of society or the town. And it's a force that we can't do a whole lot about. And then there's this remarkable reaction to it. Absolutely, Brett. Others, I mean, things that this strike you in this story. Oh, yeah. get that either. And they're showing off like the ornaments and the things that she's made. And it, you know, there's a lot, of, I mean, we could speculate. There's lots of sane reasons to be to invite him, but they don't invite him and they don't hurry him to save her life. It, in some ways, in this story, presumably she has already died before the invitation to, to Peter comes in. So it is, it raises a question like, what's the point? I mean, you know, Peter does an amazing thing, but they didn't expect it, sure. Absolutely. Sure. This is a small thing, but I just noticed on this reading that she's identified as a disciple. Very 
Yeah, there's not a lot of men in this story, by the way. You get the feeling they're down by the 7-Eleven busting another bottle of cheap wine or something. I mean, they're just not they're not around, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we'll get help. <laughs> we'll fix something. <laughs> they're, they're fixing cars out in the, the front of the, uh, the compound. Another reaction. It does seem like there's a lot of widows. I mean, you know, this kind of comes from literature. I mean, obviously, that's probably due to kind of war and fighting and different things. And it, it, it seems to me like there's a completely different narrative. I mean, this might be stretching it a little bit, but I, and I'm riffing off of like why are there so many widows around. But uh, if kind of other narratives and ancient thought are about war, if you read Thucydides or you read Herodotus, it's about war, right? It's about men killing other men. The successor goes on and lives, right? Uh, here, this is a story not about war, right? But the remnants of war possibly are still there, that men go off and kill each other and the widows are left. But this is a story about completely in the opposite direction. There's a new kind of, if you like reading Acts, the spirit explodes, explodes upon the scene, and things are happening. Right? You know, in some sense, like P- Peter's not even, you know, Peter is kind of like under the influence of the spirit directing him all over the place as well. So it's an interesting kind of narrative that's being told, uh, that's counterintuitive probably to the way in which narratives would have been told at the time. Now, this is a, a raising story. It's bringing people back to life, not about war and about the great things that happened during the war. And certainly Luke is our author, and we know how he told his gospel. And it's interesting here, the, the church is breaking out among the people who would never be recorded in history. Uh, widows would have never been spoken of. Uh, women as just, I mean, these are just not things that make, they're not significant. They're, they're, you know, if you're writing a history book, then you trash all this stuff. Uh, Maybe even the resurrection is insignificant because it doesn't happen to a significant person. And it's interesting, uh, the justification of her significance is good works, not uh, a conqueror in war, so to speak. So it's interesting, the, uh, the church is breaking out among people that you wouldn't expect to even matter. I mean, if you can start something, don't start there. It's not going to be much of a movement. We do one more. Yeah, Amy. Well, actually, it's interesting. We talked about Rachel Hill Evans. I've just finished the book that she wrote, and she talks about, you know, later, obviously, Paul's admissions to widows are all negative, right? Be quiet because your husband isn't there to rule trim you and stop being, like, don't sleep around. But this is actually first, this example of the church bringing in the widow is this really amazing woman who has, you know, dedicated her life to serving others. And so we hold up this, you know, I don't want to even know concerned, we hold up this, this is woman's place, but this was, this was woman's place first. And so just, the, this is an alternative story that we forget to tell, of um, both how the church has served the widow, but also how the widow Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting group of people and it, that's gathered around this story. And, and, and Peter, I, does he do this again? I don't think he ever heals anyone again in the New Testament. So he chooses an interesting person to do this with and, and an interesting crowd. I had a couple of thoughts for us on this. Um, is And, and we'll, we'll carry this on next week. But, um, but struggling to be Easter, struggling to understand and embody Easter. Look at Let's think about this group as a community first. Is um, in some ways this group of I think women, widows, uh, um, disciples 
are a group of people that in some way have embraced this idea of of Jesus' resurrection to the point that they are horrified by death. Uh, Their reaction, I I, I don't know, I, I think had we lived during those times, we wouldn't respond to death in the same way that we do now. We feel like we're being cheated. When, when someone dies now, we feel like that's, this is not normal. Uh, surely somebody in a lab right now is figuring something out that's going to let me live to 150, and that ought to be enough time for somebody to figure out something better. We feel like our lives, and, and for them, they're, that, this, this is a normalcy, but it was a group of people who were horrified by the notion of death and were aligned with life. Uh, even in Peter's kind of coming into the scene, they are demonstrating the beauty of Tabitha or Dorcas's life. Uh, they are connected to life. And in some ways, I think part of the placement of this story for us is this idea that the resurrection of Jesus wasn't, I think Joshi may have said this, wasn't some magic trick that Jesus pulled off once and it worked out in his favor and good for him, so to speak, and Jesus was the, the life magic trick doer person, but in some way the declaration of the early church was that life had come. The powers of sin and death were still very present in their world and would reap their calamity, but it had changed, that life in some way had won. And this community of people are at least demonstrating the fact that the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection we talk about of inhabiting our lives was not this one-time event that happened to one person and good for him. And that means that maybe I'm not a sinner anymore, so to speak, but it really doesn't mean anything about my life right now. And this group of people are saying to the most unlikely, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has literally changed it all. This is a little bit of a portrait of what life looks like um, after resurrection. In fact, it's some ways they are telling a different story in this action. They're saying that the world has changed. There's many a time when I sit on this stool or you share something and we wonder whether the world has changed. We wonder whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ has really changed anything. But there's so many times, like we said last week, we have these glimpses. And this was more than a glimpse where we go, my goodness, the world truly has been rearranged in in every way. And then notice the last line of this. I want you to hold on to this. Is that um, the, the throwaway line is that Simon is staying with a tanner. What's the significance of that? Unclean. And the very next scene is going to be about Cornelius and Peter and the whole idea, the the whole nature of who the body of Christ is, who is following God, who God loves is going to be blown wide open. And I think it's interesting that this resurrection story has a social element to it. The idea, if we were like to say, this is a neat thing to believe in, it's a neat thing to know, I live with my hope that someday I will be joined with God, and that would be a really good story just in and of itself. But what this story says is, that wouldn't be the whole story, because I'm about to tell you that this resurrection of Christ is going to blow the world up. Everybody who might have had the label of out 
is getting ready to be invited to the end. Uh, so if you read the next chapter or the passages beyond that, and you'll see huge, huge ramifications of this. So as a community, one of the stories does is it challenges us. What does it mean to be a community of people who are in our social actions, in our relationships, in our connections, in our politics, in our economics, and all that we do in some way are we aligned with the life that Jesus has proclaimed and the life that's a possibility for all people and the future that Jesus has declared as sure. So it has huge community words for us. I think it also has some pretty strong words for us as individuals. Because I read a story like this, it's like reading the newspaper when somebody wins a lottery or something like that, or like a $20 uh, gift certificate from Harris Teeter or something. Yeah, my reaction is, who wins those things? I never win those things. When am I going to win a $20 gift certificate from Harris Teeter? Because I'll know I'm really significant when that happens, right? Um, but in some ways, we read these stories as oddities, as if they don't portend for our own life. And if we really wanted to have some fun, we won't do this, but if we really wanted to do some kind of graphic art, we would put up paper right now and just say, just for fun, destroy yourself. Start making a list of everything that you can think of about your own life that disqualifies you from embracing the resurrection. And I don't know, some of you guys are probably very virtuous, but for me, I would need more paper. I said, Ben, you got to go down and buy more paper. I need sticky notes because I can make a really, really long list. And in some way, this is a story that is telling us that um, we are deeply included. The social change that it portends, the hope that it gives, relates entirely to us. Um, last week, I made a mention of um, Brendan Manning, who had died just two days before, and kind of shared a little bit about my friend Phil Anderson's um, kind of interactions with him. But I thought I would leave us with just a, a couple of quotes. This is from the Ragamuffin Gospel. And I, I shared a little bit about Brendan. He, he, the power of his ministry is everything that he did should have disqualified him from God's love if you applied kind of a self-righteous worldview about people. But in some ways, he was the voice, maybe in many ways, of our generation of the greatness of the grace of God. And here's a, a couple of things that he wrote. Uh, suffering, failure, loneliness, sorrow, discouragement, and death will be part of your journey. But the kingdom of God will conquer all these horrors. No evil can resist grace forever. Um, and in some weeks, next week, part of our exercise is going to be to take evil, take discourtesy, take criticism, take shame and place it into the center of our community and then declare that it's not going to rule our fate. Declare that it is overcome by love. It's overcome by the practice and the power of uh, the resurrection. Uh, one blogger wrote this on Brennan. In a religious culture that demands we put our best foot forward, a popular culture where our own self-righteousness and our own, excuse me, our, our self-righteous egos have grown digital skin and taken on a life of their own. Manning reminded us in his last writings that grace can only come through the dirt and mire of transparency and confession. Through his own candid omissions and all his grace, this was his memoir that he wrote, he pointed to the truth that if we are to grasp the depths of God's love, we must first, and he used to say this often, be who we is before him 
and our community. And in some ways, this is a really simple invitation, this story, is to be deeply transparent, to be deeply broken in certain ways, to be deeply confessional in every way, because those acts of simple confession are acts of death that in some ways enjoin us to the life that, that Jesus offers in resurrection and the life of this world around us. And it mobilizes us not to be people who are cheerleaders for Jesus. Yay, Jesus, I know more about him than you. It, it mobilizes us in some ways to be people who are part of the social change that are the embodiment of the resurrection uh, that Jesus brought to us. So I look forward to next week. We're going to pick this up next week in terms of, of how do we embrace resurrection in terms of the bruises of our lives and the wounds of our lives uh, and, and, and live as joyful people and expectant people in the midst of that. But I invite the band now to uh, to come and lead us into confession and absolution. And perhaps if Brennan's words would frame that for us to some degree, is and this is one of the reasons that our worship kind of liturgy almost always has confession to it, is I deeply believe, and I think a lot of you understand deeply, that the idea that a confessional posture is what aligns us with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our postures of, I don't need it in the first place, in no ways let us see the wonder and the glory and the the beauty that it is. Uh, And it makes stories like this just one more neat biblical throwaway. Uh, Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm so encouraged by what you've shared, and uh, I just wanted to say that I've been very impatient this week, and I've been very tired of waiting to be better. Uh, It's kind of annoying to do the same things over and over, Uh, and so this song is about that, and so are 85% of the psalms.
feeling like I felt this week, it's helpful to have the perspective of this next song, uh, <clears throat> which has been a great blessing in my life to listen to and to sing. So you can sing along to anything. It's probably harder when you're hearing the songs for the first time, but you might know this one. Thank you. 